years of rum. Today we discuss a giant, a man who set out on a project of anachronism. Pretense is not an uncommon thing in the modern world. Dressing up as some kind of character out of a TV or book about the past happens a lot. Don Draper from Mad Men led to a noticeable rise in the number of old fashions being drunk and the number of three-piece suits being worn. And Wes Anderson has created an entire career out of a pretense-filled past that he deeply admired. But both of those things are a bit of a fantasy. They're a mythologization of a partially forgotten past. They play on nostalgia and bring up the idea that things were once great and now they aren't. And while these figures are considered great or successful in their own way, this instinct to mimic the past, to be pretentious, is just as likely to attract ridicule. The fedora now embodies unearned pretense. And moralizing lectures are more satire than they feel true. Embodying the past usually either leads to a fierce kind of admiration or utter scorn. There's rarely much room in between. One of the most vexing things about Roman historical figures is that they rarely grow. We rarely hear much about their childhood. Roman childhoods were considered even by the Romans to be fairly unimportant. But when we do hear something about the childhood, the characters seem to step out as fully formed adults, already demonstrating the traits that they would become famous for. This is not something that is unique to the ancient world. We still do this when we talk about Washington's honesty after he chopped down a cherry tree or Bill Gates' incredible proficiency with computers at a young age. But unlike modern historical figures, that's all we get. There is no growth. There are just these moments that demonstrate the child is already an adult. The first moment that we have for Cato is a moment like this. He's four years old. There's a politician visiting his uncle from out of town. And the politician is discussing why it's so important that the Italians be given citizenship and a place in Roman society. This is the same cause that the Gracchi brothers are killed for supporting. So while this out-of-state politician is discussing all of the important reasons why this needs to happen, he turns to Cato and he says, come on, help me convince your uncle. You get it, right? But Cato just stares at the man. There are some other children present who nod their heads and agree, in that kind of agreeable way that children do if you ask them to agree. But Cato looked stoic, or maybe angry, or maybe just a little dumb. And the politician gets frustrated with this reticence. And he gets angry at Cato. And in his anger and his frustration, he grabs Cato by the ankle and he hangs him out of a window, asking him if he will now concede that the Italians should have citizenship. But when he brings Cato back in, Cato is still silent and staring. And in his unmoving gaze, the politician gives up, bowing to the pure force of will that seemed to possess Cato. This is the kind of story that we get from Roman childhoods, of an impossibly self-possessed child who exhibits something that the adult would become famous for. Cato had a lot to live up to. He had a rather specific person that he was trying to live up to. He was part of the Cato family. And while for several generations they had been senators and held positions of some importance, none of the rest of his family could live up to their great heir, Cato the censor, the man who would become known to history as Cato the elder. 
and the man to whom Cato looked most. This was his great-grandfather. Cato the censor was a man who emulated the ideals of the Middle Republic. He went from being this city-dwelling aristocrat to a citizen farmer. There was a phrase that was almost synonymous with his name. We are not Cato. It came to symbolize the close to moral perfection that was embodied by Cato the censor and how unachievable that was by almost anyone else. If you listened to the Cato the Elder episode, you know that this was not a version of morality that we would see today. There was a streak of callousness and even cruelty that he baked into his ideology, but that callousness, that hard-headed straightforward kind of speaking played well with his contemporaries. Cato the Elder was very popular in his day. We tend to associate the word stoic with a kind of reserved wisdom, a bit of age and insight, and saying less than you mean a resiliency. But Stoicism as a philosophy was once considered dangerous. It was a foreign cult, or at least that's how the Romans saw it. Stoicism is an idea that derives from the Greek philosopher named Zeno and really traces its roots back to Plato and Socrates. Philosophy in general was kind of a Greek import, The Middle Republican Romans saw it as something that clouded the clear-thinking, non-philosophic Roman mind, that callousness that Cato the Elder exhibited. And that was the mind and the body that had led Romans of the Middle Republic to conquer the known world. It's somewhat surprising, then, that Cato the Younger, whose idol hated and feared Stoicism, would take the philosophy so completely, engrossing himself in the ideology and becoming almost its patron saint. There would be many Stoics who came after Cato. There would be few who lived Stoicism to quite the degree that Cato did. At its core, the Roman version of Stoicism, the version of Stoicism that was really practiced in Rome, claimed that happiness only exists in personal virtue. In other words, there is nothing in the world that will make you happy other than being personally virtuous. You can get lucky and make a lot of money, but that won't lead to happiness. You can get very unlucky and lose your family and lose your home, but that will also not make you unhappy, or should not make you unhappy. Obviously, there are plenty of people who have lost their homes for whom this is not a workable philosophy. But there's also probably some people who have. This idea that nothing outside of yourself can make you unhappy is kind of perfectly suited to a soldier's life has the potential to make someone really resistant to changes in fortune and negative physical condition. And soldiers have to march, they have to sweat and get exhausted and endure pain and injury and battle and fear. And Stoicism teaches you to be hard in the face of all of those, to not display overt emotion, either negative or positive. And that had a real attraction to these young Roman boys who were trying to live up to some difficult-to-parse values. You can see how this would create a self-serious and almost stuck-up young man, which is probably part of the reason why the old Roman elders feared it as a foreign cult. If a whole bunch of your 19-year-olds are getting really serious and not responding with the proper deference, but instead just looking you dead in the eye as you mock them or declare that the Italians should or shouldn't have citizenship, it can seem like a dangerous philosophy. But the idea 
But the idea is to turn yourself into a bit of a rock. And all sorts of things can happen against a rock. Waves can crash. It can rain. It can hail. People can laugh at the rock. But no matter what, the rock remains unchanging. And in this philosophy, Cato found a way to deal with the hardships of soldiery life. But probably more than anything else, Cato found a way to deal with mockery and laughter. Because he was not especially good at that sort of thing. As you can imagine of a self-serious young boy who unironically imitates his great-grandfather, it's the sort of thing that attracts a certain amount of mockery. And Cato figured out a way to make that manageable. And if he hadn't seemed quite so dedicated to this philosophy or to the imitation, Everything he was doing might have seemed like artifice. But his follow-through is basically unmatched. At the time of Cato's youth, Rome was still living under the dictatorship of Sulla. Sulla had taken complete control of Rome and presided over purges that dominated this era, and then resigned to live as a private citizen, which left everyone in a weird position of hating the man but still being afraid enough not to try and mount any attack on him. And of course, in this climate of fear, Cato asks his teacher why they all still allow Sulla to live. Why are they willing to bow and pretend like this truly hated man did the right thing? You can see the influence of the hard-headed stoicism here, but it meshes so completely with this teenage desire for rebellious danger, this willing to sacrifice yourself that you see in 16, 17, 18-year-olds and the reason why they get drafted to go out and fight wars, that they kind of become one and the same. But either way, every day after that, his teacher searched him for weapons before letting him into the Senate chambers and anywhere close to Sulla. And he was let into the Senate chambers. We are talking about a man who was marked for greatness. Even though he was only 14 at this time, he had a senatorial family, so he was a senator-in-waiting, and he would go up the rather traditional path of achievement. Sometimes with wealthy there's sort of an assumption that they just get everything for free, that things just come to them. If you were born like Donald Trump, you could just have money delivered to you and you don't have to work for things very much. And there's probably like a default state. There's probably a life that you can have as the child of a wealthy aristocrat that will just be given to you if you don't do much else, if you do kind of the bare minimum that's expected of you. But in Roman life, everything was so competitive that really the real honors, the stuff that people actually wanted, that was not delivered to you. You could not just passively earn a consulship. You might be able to luck into one. There are people who lucked into consulships, but it was not something that, would just come your way. So even at this age, Cato is having some benefits from being the son of a senator, but he is also recognized as a little more special than most other young boys, at least from what information we have. And one of the first things that a young adult needs to navigate is marriage. This self-serious boy would never have wild success with women, unlike Pompey with his boyish charm, or Caesar with his ability to seduce basically anyone. He would have a lot of trouble attracting the right kind of bride. But just like Pompey and Caesar, he understood that marriage was as much political as it was for love. After a bit, Cato managed to find a marriageable young woman whose other suitor had moved on and snubbed her. 
which was lucky for Cato, since the other man was named Metellus Scipio and was a descendant of the great conqueror Scipio Africanus, whom Cato's ancestor had humiliated in the courts. Metellus Scipio was a far more marriageable man than Cato. Now, maybe it was spite, or maybe it was because Scipio was perennially indecisive, but he waited until days before the wedding to say that actually he wanted the girl to marry him. Now, the girl's opinion is not recorded. We can't say for sure that she wanted to be married to Scipio or would have preferred to be married to Cato. Women in this era are actually a bit of a hot commodity. There are far more ambitious young men than there are marriageable women because there's a lot of new men trying to make their name. And so they probably had some leverage. But it would have been the girl's father who made the decision one way or the other. And her father decided to marry the girl to Metella Scipio. And Cato was thoroughly embarrassed by this turn of events. And he didn't have a lot of recourse. There just wasn't a lot that he could do to win someone back from the super popular kid in the crowd. So he did something that would have been a little more expected in his era. He wrote a poem about it. The best comparison of the modern world would be a diss track, but it would be the kind of thing that was widely engaged in by all sorts of aristocracy of the day. It was kind of uh, airing of the dirty laundry and trying to mock this man. And even though very little of this hurt Metella Scipio, it was a decidedly unstoic response. It was not at all the willingness to accept whatever misfortunes come your way that Cato would eventually become famous for. And this is one of those moments where we have some insight into the growth of Cato as an individual. He would go on to find another bride, a woman named Attila, about who we have startlingly little information, other than the fact that Cato would eventually divorce her for unseemly conduct, whatever that means. Once he was successfully married, the next step was to gain some military experience. The first place that Cato got a taste for battle was in the Servile War against Spartacus. He actually was deployed and fought in the Servile War before Crassus took control. So he was part of that initial response that was sort of inadequate to deal with Spartacus because they didn't really understand who Spartacus was at that time. And after he returned from the war, he launched his first political campaign. He's 28 at this point, and he wants to win the office of Praetor. Praetor is kind of like the commander of a small military unit. Generally speaking, electioneering is nothing new, and the Romans were experts in it. And one of the standard pieces of Roman electioneering was to have a slave who would follow the candidate around and whisper the names and details of anyone they came in contact with. Oh, yes, this is Gaius Marcus. You owe him 2,000 sesterces. This is... Julia, the wife of Pompeius, she just had a child. It's kind of the ancient Roman version of kissing babies. And I honestly feel like it's something that still happens, but I might literally just be thinking of that one episode of 30 Rock. Now, slaves like that cost money. And Cato was never one to spend a lot of money. So Cato didn't buy a slave to help him in this way. Instead, he simply walked around alone and relied on his memory. And he wouldn't lie or fake it if his memory failed him. Campaigning in this way was unornamented, but very attention-grabbing. It felt authentic, because Cato believed what he said. Believing what he said was almost the thing that defined Cato. Cato would set himself apart consistently for his interest in philosophy, but while many Romans studied philosophy to have dinner table conversation, Cato studied it for an answer, for a why. And it gave Cato this deeply authentic vibe. 
that he used to absolutely the best effect. Overall, this probably would not have been an excellent campaign strategy, but because this was a slightly smaller election, it was a very effective way to make the most out of limited assets. And so he won the praetorship. He went east to fight in the Third Mithridatic War. This is the last gasp of breath for the Poison King, who had taunted Rome so thoroughly, and young Cato was put in charge of a small troop of soldiers. Now, these men saw a lot of commanders. All Roman soldiers did. They rotated in and out. They rode in on large white horses, promised the world, and then taped up mission-accomplished banners two weeks before they were due to leave. Cato set himself apart again. He didn't arrive on a horse. He arrived on foot. He slept in a small tent, just like their soldiers. He ate the same food they did. He drank the same wine they did. And he never complained. He did all of the things that Marius did. But instead of doing them in a way that convinced the Roman aristocracy that he couldn't be trusted, he did them in a way that celebrated Roman values. And both the aristocracy and the common people loved him for it. His soldiers loved him for it. It seems likely that he was never so well loved as he was while he was commanding his men in the east. The shifting political alliances of Rome and the fickle crowds and their love for Caesar never really approached the unencumbered admiration that these men found for him, the camaraderie that they had out on campaign. I like to imagine that in Cato's darker times, he would look back on this period with happy nostalgia. But he didn't, Donald. He was definitely still ambitious, and so after his term as praetor, he returned to Rome to run for a new office, this time quaestor. Sulla, in his lifetime, had established something called the cursus honorum. This was a path of offices that you were required to hold in order to achieve a consulship. Quaestor was nearly at the bottom and was basically the IRS agent of ancient Rome. It was a boring and monotonous job, and many Romans did it half-heartedly, if at all. But Cato might have never been made for any position more. He interviewed previous quaestors. He studied Roman constitutional laws. He perused the current list of bureaucratic staff that the quaestor managed and carefully assessed which ones were corrupt and which ones could be kept. Because outside of the quaestor, who was kind of the person in charge of the IRS, there were a couple of career administrators. And if they're assessing money and deciding on taxes, it is basically the ideal scenario for graft to enter the picture. When he won the position, he made sweeping changes fast. He fired a ton of people. He called in debts owed to the state. He accurately assessed as many taxes as he was legally allowed to assess. And the result was messy, but profitable. Calling in the debts made him a lot of enemies. But Cato also paid back debts that many citizens had assumed were lost. Money given to the state and then just assumed to be forgotten about. So paying that money back made him some friends. And the public excitement over the anti-corruption campaign and the way that Cato held himself sustained him through any potential attacks by new rivals. The end result was something so admirable and impressive and won the state so much money that he bought himself the cover he needed. And he needed a bit of cover right then specifically because of his decision to fire the chief clerk. When he became quaestor, he fired the man who was obviously guilty of graft, and so this man went on trial for corruption charges. But he had committed enough graft to have some money laying around, and corruption was kind of the name of the game in ancient Rome. Trial results could basically just be bought, which is exactly what happened. This man bought his acquittal, meaning that by the Constitution, Cato had no grounds to fire him. But Cato and everyone else knew exactly what had happened, 
and Cato simply refused to acknowledge the court's decision, and he never rehired the man. Cato, by and large, was a strict constitutionalist. He would employ the more esoteric parts of Roman law as levers to get what he wanted. This kind of strict adherence to the rules is something that Cato would rely on more and more as things got tough, but here, in his early years, he pretty blatantly ignores it in pursuit of a kind of higher good. And that was always Caesar's position. And speaking of Caesar, after Cato had ended his run as quaestor, Caesar was already starting to make a name for himself. Caesar was an ambitious rising star who, along with Pompey, became the focus of a lot of Cato's work. Because Caesar and Pompey began to want to do things that Cato did not think were okay. Caesar and Pompey tended to align themselves with the Popularis party, basically the people, the citizens, the average Joe. And Cato aligned himself with the conservative Optimates, which literally means best men, and yes, they named themselves that. They were a conservative, backward-looking party that wanted to return to kind of the glory of the Middle Republic without any of the ambitious flaunting favor trading that existed in the corrupt modern republic. The thing that Pompey and Caesar were fairly good at is playing the Rome of that day to their own advantage. They saw the world as it was, and Cato kind of saw the world as the Constitution wanted it to be. There was not a lot of political maneuvering that Cato could do to stop them from doing exactly what they wanted. So he leaned into his understated, stoic roots. On the day that Caesar was returning from Spain, he sent a delegate to ask the Senate to move the next election back a few weeks so that Caesar could celebrate his triumph first and then run for consul. This was not an uncommon request. You could not enter a city to run for office at the head of an army, you had to enter as a private citizen. And if you disbanded your army so that you could enter the city, that army couldn't be reformed to have the triumph. You're basically giving up that triumph. And Caesar was close to the day where you had to declare your candidacy in person. So a lot of people had pushed back the dates of the election at various points. And Caesar had won enough friends and bribed enough more that the Senate was likely to give it to him. But Cato sensed that the precedent being set was a dangerous one. The idea that Caesar would be allowed to jump from a successful army officer straight into being consul smacked of the kind of accumulation of power that seemed really dangerous to Cato. So when the topic came up in the Senate, Cato simply rose and started talking about all of the problems with allowing the move of the election date. And he kept talking. And he kept talking. Until that day was over and no vote had happened at all. He filibustered Caesar's ability to have his cake and eat it too. Caesar had to make a choice as to whether he wanted a triumph or whether he wanted the consulship. Now, the triumph was the highest honor in Rome. In some sense, this is like asking whether someone wants an Oscar or whether they want to be a senator. You can rerun and be a senator, but if you're going to get an Oscar for that work, it has to be this year. But Caesar kind of saw it the reverse. He can always do more work that earns him another triumph, but he wants the consulship now. And so Caesar disbanded his army, came into the city, declared his consulship, and won. This was not a happy turn of events for Cato. He was not excited to have Caesar in the consulship, but he made sure that Caesar wouldn't have an unopposed road to push through any bill he wanted. He made sure that the other consul that year, whose name was Bibulus, was a Cato partisan, was a member of the Optimates party. But Caesar wasn't the only one that Cato was trying to forestall. Pompey's resettlement of the East was also being blocked by Cato, and Crassus's deal with the Eastern tax collectors was also being blocked by Cato. 
historical attacks on Cato can come in a few forms. Either he is a hypocrite because he performed extra constitutional actions, like not rehiring that head clerk, and because he loved wine, which is very unstoic. Or he was so stringent and unwilling to compromise that this led to the Civil War, just as much as Caesar's ambition did. When Pompey returned from the East, he came to Cato. Cato had made a name for himself as the arbiter of what was right in Rome, as the keeper of the most maiorum, the way of the elders, and Pompey wanted almost nothing more than to be accepted by the established order. He asked for the hand of Cato's daughter, and Cato, who feared that he was being politically outmaneuvered more than he liked the idea of being courted, is supposed to have told the most marriageable bachelor in Rome that he would not be outmaneuvered in the bedchamber. And that's the kind of scorn that was felt deeply by Pompey and led to him marrying Caesar's daughter Julia as kind of a backup. But if Cato hadn't pushed him away here, there might have been room to bring him over to the Optimate side. Whether it was mistrust or pride, Cato had literally made most of his career claiming that Pompey was trying to make himself a king. And allowing his daughter to marry Pompey would mean that admitting he was incorrect. Cato spurned one of several chances that he might have had to save the Republic. All of this spurning and political gridlock pretty directly led to the conditions for the first triumvirate. Caesar, Pompey, and Crassus allied in secret. And this was pretty unthinkable. Cato didn't know at the beginning. Caesar proposed a land redistribution bill to the Senate. This was always a tricky subject with wealthy senators, and when it came time for a vote, Cato again stood up and started talking. But Caesar could tell almost immediately where this was going, and he actually had Cato pulled off the rostrum and dragged to prison. And there was basically nothing worse he could have done. For even though the land reform bill was relatively popular, there was no one who was more an arbiter of what was right than Cato. Senators, even senators who were nominally on Caesar's side, began standing up. And when Caesar asked where they were going, they said that they would rather be in prison with Cato than in the Senate with Caesar. Cato had carefully obstructed, and Caesar had overplayed his hand. But Caesar wasn't done yet. If the Senate wouldn't pass what was a definitively moderate land reform bill, he used the political theater as a justification to take it straight to the people. Technically, you could propose a bill to the people. Usually, the people just ratified whatever the Senate did, but technically, they were the final arbiters. And so he went into the streets and proposed it to the General Assembly. Cato tried again to block him. He sent Bibulus, Caesar's coal council, out there to veto the bill. And Caesar declared that the people would have the land reform bill, this wildly popular bill, if Bibulus would allow it. And Bibulus overplayed his hand when he declared that the people would never have the bill, even if they wanted it, which is the wrong thing to shout at such a partisan card. And they started pelting him and the other optimates, including Cato, with rocks and shoes and vegetables and rotten fruit and anything they had on hand. And while the Optimates were running away, Cato retreated slowly, prophesying dire warnings about the end of the Republic if the people kept continuing this way. And at that moment, Caesar called Pompey and Crassus on stage to voice their support for the bill. Once the bill passed, the Senate had to sign it. And the crafty Caesar had slipped in a provision that forced all senators to swear an oath to uphold the bill, forcing even grudging senators to accept the new law. But this was the straw that broke the camel's back for Cato. He had practically made up his mind to go into exile over this. Pompey and Crassus were allied, and all of them were working with Caesar, and now Caesar slips a codicil into this bill, forcing me to swear an oath to a law that I hate. Cato was ready to leave it all behind. If not for Cicero, who convinced him 
saying, while Cato has no need of Rome, Rome has a need of Cato. So Cato signed the bill. He would not try to repeal the land redistribution, but he would still work against Caesar. And eventually, he would become a real problem for the consul. But Caesar was nothing if not crafty, and he had a lot of weapons up his sleeves. While Cato was trying to block legislation that would give Caesar another link in his unbroken chain of successful postings, Claudius Pulcher, the man who was often responsible for the street violence in Rome that dominated this period, had a new assignment for Cato. He was the tribune at that time, and he decided that Cato should get a plum posting in Cyprus. This is the kind of thing that could make a fortune for an aristocrat who wanted to skim money off of some province. Cyprus was a newly integrated area. And it was not a gift or order that Cato really had the ability to refuse. But it would pull Cato away from any action. And it might even open him up to charges of misconduct if anything goes wrong. While many of his friends want him to resist in one way or another, Cato refused. He simply took the legally obligated position as the man who would incorporate Cyprus into the empire. And he did just that. With the small retinue of clerks and the skills he gained as a quaestor, he marched down to Cyprus and fleeced every penny from that unfortunate kingdom. He was not cruel, but the process of incorporation into the empire was not a pleasant one and his diligent accountants found every attempt that the Cyprians had made to squirrel away amounts of money for themselves. These were not good times for Cato. The Stoic philosophy that was supposed to make him indifferent to misfortune certainly kept him as an effective administrator, even under his depression and his sense of failure. But he was not a happy man. A friend came to visit him, hoping for a warm reception. But Cato made practically no mention of it. No banquet, none of the expected honors for a visiting Roman friend. And when the friend pointed this out to Cato, Cato derided the man for wanting anything so base, saying that the true Stoic wouldn't cling to something that ephemeral. So his friend left and Cato even further isolated himself. He worked diligently in Cyprus. He collected 7,000 silver talents, which is about one-third of the money that Pompey brought back from his conquest of the entire East. And Cato hadn't even had an army. The Roman people were so impressed and in such admiration that they voted Cato extraordinary honors. But Cato, being Cato, refused them. He was delving further and further into this role of the pariah prophet. And scorning public adulation and opinion seemed to be an important part of that. And I think some part of him really just blamed other people for everything that had happened. But he did have good insight. Since he had been gone, some things had changed. Crassus had marched off to Parthia to die. Pompey's wife Julia had died in childbirth. And Caesar's public stature was growing and growing and growing. Plus, Pompey had very clearly not turned out to be the tyrant that Cato feared he would be. And looking at the calculating and power-hungry Caesar, Cato began to ascribe some of the mistrust that he had for Pompey on to Caesar. He started to understand that making some kind of pact with Pompey in order to pull him away from Caesar might be necessary. So overtures were made, and one of the implied promises was that if Pompey was willing to stop supporting Caesar so much, he would finally receive the approval of the establishment that he had always craved. Thus began a period of waffling for Pompey. He made laws requiring you to be present in Rome to stand for all elections, but then created exceptions for Caesar, who was off fighting Gauls. He made it seem like he'd come over to the Optimate side, but then he would write letters to Caesar claiming that he was still a Caesarian partisan. All of this culminated 
when Caesar started marching home from his war in Gaul. The Senate wanted Caesar's army disbanded as soon as possible. They wanted Pompey to order Caesar to disband his legions. Pompey had a number of legions camped just outside of Rome, which by any of the laws were just as illegal as if Caesar marched one across the Rubicon. But Pompey showed a brash thoughtlessness about the situation. He claimed that Caesar wouldn't dare attack, and that if Caesar did, all Pompey had to do was stamp his foot, and legions would appear from all throughout Italy. It might be hard to understand why the standoff had to occur here, but the answer is probably Cato. At several points, it looked like there might be a way out of the standoff. While Cato and the Optimates were calling for Caesar to disband his legion, a Caesarian partisan put in a proposal that both Caesar and Pompey disband their legions. And that seemed like it was pretty accepted by the Senate. They were happy to go along with that. But Cato stood up and bullied the Senate into vetoing this into requiring that only Caesar disband his legions, because anything else would be placing Rome squarely into the hands of this crafty, evil man. Cato's firmness and rigidity of opinion that had so often been seen as a stoic asset mixed so completely with his distrust of ambitious men, and it ticked the clock closer to civil war all the time. And that's just what happened. Caesar, sensing that there was no deal to be made, no way that he could protect his dignity and his right of place and be an equal to Pompey, crossed the Rubicon. And Pompey, when he realized what Caesar was actually doing, fled in fear, taking most of the Senate with him, including Cato. And Cato's inflexibility really starts to show its downside. He remains inflexible even in Pompey's camp. Nominally, he was on Pompey's side, but he maintained this separation. He was with Pompey, but he was not a part of Pompey. He wanted to be a separate power base. He wanted to cultivate something that would allow him to say, even though he supports Pompey now, once they defeat Caesar there would probably need to be some re-examination of Pompey's status. Or maybe it was just that he wanted to maintain his separate authority. He got placed in that position, like Han Solo, of wanting to still be an individual and be a counterculture figure, be an iconoclast, and declaring hard for Pompey Really supporting Pompey would mean losing all of that. At this exact moment when he would need to do that to save the Republic, Cato's love of his own social position, of his own personality, kept all of them from really uniting in the Civil War. Because under Stoic rules, he personally was acting moral. He held himself above all the people he could have lifted up. They were not Cato. There can only be one Cato. And because of that, Pompey would sideline Cato. And eventually Pompey would lose the final battle. Whatever remained of the senatorial cause retreated to Utica. There were a number of senators and magistrates left, along with several legions, but the unquestioned moral authority lay with Cato. He was the leader who everyone was looking to, but he refused. Instead, he vested authority in Metellus Scipio, the man who stole his bride so many years before. He was the only man among them who had held the consulship actually having defeated Cato for it several years previous. And at the moment when Cato might have been able to do the most good to maintain some shred of the Republic, he instead put it in the hands of someone who was not just semi-competent, but was also petty. 
Scipio spent his time drawing up lists of people who he would revenge himself against, imagining that he would defeat Caesar and then lead a victorious army to Rome, becoming a new Caesar himself. While Cato dreamed of the Republic, the men who were even capable of administering it had died or been lost to the Civil War. They were not Cato. There was no one but Cato left. And because of his inflexibility, or maybe because of his fear that power would force him to compromise, as it forces all of us to compromise, he, as much as Scipio, was responsible for the final defeat at Utica. Caesar defeated the legions who were there. The night of the battle, Cato didn't wait for Caesar. Caesar almost certainly would have pardoned him, but... Cato rejected even Caesar's right to pardon Cato. He didn't want to live out his days as an old and ignored senator. He had a dinner, a small feast with some philosophers, one who was a Stoic and another who was an Aristotelian. And they had a lively discussion, probably something that Cato genuinely enjoyed and found pleasure in before Caesar arrived the next day. They went around the table discussing politics, and the Aristotelian philosopher brought up an objection to a Stoic point of faith, something he'd probably done hundreds of times before. But this time, it set Cato off. He shouted the man down, his own philosopher, who he had on retainer, who he knew well, he shouted him down, pounded his fists on the table, and he completely ruined the fiction that everything was going to be all right. All at once, the room understood that these were ideals which Cato lived, which he believed so completely that they built the foundation of his life. And on some level, he was terrified that they had failed him. Everyone understood what Cato was planning to do that night. When Cato went to bed, he requested the Phaedo by Plato, a book about the death of Socrates. Cato read it twice. The Stoic ethic is specific. While no person is happy except the virtuous, no person is truly virtuous except Socrates. In the Phaedo, Socrates calls his friends to his cell, where he is supposed to drink hemlock, and he explains to them that death is not the end, and that even though his body is leaving this earth, his soul will live on forever. He talks about the purpose of life and the underlying meaning that life has after death. And this was the book that Cato chose to have by his side. When he was done reading it for the second time, Cato reached for his sword. But his family, understanding what he planned to do, had removed it from his bedroom. Already stretched to the breaking point, he shouted and called for it. Eventually, he even hit a slave, breaking his own hand, until his sword was brought to him. Cato claimed that he would need it in case he had to defend against Caesar. But it's unlikely that many in the family bought the fiction. He waited again for the rest of his family to go back to sleep. And then as quietly as he could, he cut open his own intestines, hoping to die. But again, he was foiled, whether because he made a noise or because the sword clattered to the ground. His family rushed into the room. They had a doctor on hand who stitched him up, placed his organs back inside, and covered everything with bandages. Cato thanked them, remained calm, and he claimed that it was just a moment of weakness that had passed. And he begged them to leave him alone again so that he might get some sleep. But they made sure to take the sword this time. And then, as quietly as he could, Cato tore off the bandages and opened up his own intestines letting them spill all over the ground. 
most of the time, I end these episodes with the death of the protagonist. Mostly, people here are part of the story that they are living through and might have a legacy for a few generations, but Cato is different. From some point in his 30s, Cato saw himself far more as a character from a story than as a real person. He staged his own death to be a direct reference to Socrates and was so frustrated when it was foiled that he broke his hand on a slave's face. He leaned into the self-mythologizing aspects of his life, his preternatural calm, his godlike indifference to pain, the dignity that he carried himself with. All of this frustrated and confounded Caesar, who, in the triumph that marked the end of the Civil War, actually had a painting of Cato committing suicide. Even after his death, Cato managed to gall Caesar into missteps because the crowd recognized Caesar's supremacy, but it still mourned Cato's defeat. Cato stood for a kind of purity, or for the Republic, or for an exemplar of an ideal that he wanted so badly to live up to. And canonizing people into exemplars of an ideal is the kind of thing that the ancient historians were so good at. Part of the reason why a lot of ancient history can be boring or tough is because it is filled with paragons, perfect figures. George R. R. Martin says the only thing worth writing about is the human heart in conflict with itself. And because of the time that he lived in, we have the whole drama of Cato's conflict on display. Partially because the man who cemented the first story of Cato and the exemplar myth, the man who was so often exasperated with Cato, was Cicero. Cicero praised Cato, calling him a model Roman and a model Stoic. We don't have Cicero's biography of Cato, but the legend it held created a gravitational pull that warped history around it. Because even though he took no punitive action against Cicero, Caesar again was absolutely furious that the deification of Cato was happening, even as all of Cato's terrible prophecies of Caesar's tyranny were being proved wrong. Caesar's actions after the victory were moderate, reformist, and frankly intelligent. But the deification of Caesar's most implacable foe, Caesar saw the groundwork being laid for the undoing of everything he had worked for. And he published a pamphlet, which would become known as the Anti-Cato. And though this doesn't survive either, pieces have been preserved in other writings. And it's clear that Caesar's tone is far from carefully reasoned or unbiased or the kind of third-person perspective from which he wrote the story of the Gallic conquests. It was full of frustration and invective and malice and slander against a man who was dead, even as his legend was alive. Again, a complete miscalculation for Caesar. And then Brutus, the eventual murderer of Caesar, married Cato's daughter. No human beings are simple. We are creatures with complex motivations that drive us into contradictions. But sometimes we try to portray ourselves as a single thing, a brand, so that we can be lifted up on the shoulders of others and so that they can carry us to greater heights of prominence. For many people of the late Republic, the world was very messy. Knowing what exactly was right and wrong was a difficult thing to parse. And it seemed like so much work to try and understand what was right and a lot less work to simply make sure that the scales were weighted slightly more on your side. Cato took on that work. It was the fear of this kind of unfairness or imperfection that drove Cato to his obsession for purity. And it was that obsession for purity that wound up cutting off every 
avenue for victory for him. Whether it was rejecting the alliance with Pompey that would drive him into Caesar's arms, or pushing the rule of Metellus Scipio because he had been consul already, while Cato never achieved it, Cato's inflexibility almost certainly sunk every chance he had. There's an idea that Yuval Noah Harari puts forward in Sapiens. It's the concept that religions can still be religions even without any kind of supernatural force. Stoicism was not a world-ordering religion that had a creator god. It was a personal philosophy. But all throughout Rome, in the day of Cato, it was still treated and viewed as a kind of religion, a cult. A religion that you could graft on to the polytheistic world of the Romans, but still a religion. Stoicism came before Cato, and Stoicism outlived Cato. But Cato might have been its prophet. His death was made into a myth. Augustus, Caesar's eventual heir, wrote his own anti-Cato in the model of Caesar's, but he never published. Outwardly, he embraced Cato's legacy as a way to live a moral and upright life, divorcing it somewhat from the anti-Caesarian political position that it held. Cato's death would become a focal point for discussion and deification for generations. Seneca, a Stoic philosopher, would admiringly extol the life that Cato lived, and eventually, when he was forced to commit suicide would seek to rise to Cato's example. Seneca's nephew was named Lucan, and there might be no one who is more responsible for solidifying Cato's legacy, because he wrote what would become the definitive story of Cato's journey through the desert, his march away from Pompey's army and into Utica. Eventually, it became a rather pointed attack for the excesses of Emperor Nero, the man who ruled Rome in Lucan's day. The early Christian church would mix their own admiration for Cato with the fact of his suicide, which was a distinctly non-Christian action, trying to decide how much to admire and how much to decry. St. Augustine was a Christian philosopher who was a pagan until he converted in his 30s, and he would write the definitive Christian position, that Cato's life was largely moral, but his death was purely egotistical. Because if he had been a true Stoic, he would be able to stand the misfortune of living under Caesar, since the only true happiness is derived from personal virtue. So the suicide was an action designed to ensure his legacy that was inconsistent with his own beliefs. But after all the discussion of how to position Cato in the pre- and post-Christian world, it was eventually overshadowed by the defining feature of his life, which was his resistance to Caesar. Starting in the 1700s and the advent of the Enlightenment and the full-throated approval of democratic ideals, the fact of Cato's resistance to monarchy and the defense of the Republican ideal became the defining feature of everything he stood for. He became the ancient ideal that was held up during every revolution for democratic rights. Caesar became the villain the man who crafted 2,000 years of slavery and tyranny after his destruction of Republican Rome. And in many ways, this was the zenith of Cato's popularity. There was actually a play by a man named Joseph Addison called Cato, A Tragedy. It was a massive success that garnered attention and approbation from all sides of the political spectrum. Like Hamilton in our modern era, Cato became a tragic figure of unrealized vision. And while all sides of the political spectrum respected him, he was claimed much more by the left and the Republicans than by others. Even though during his life, Cato was pretty decidedly in the hands of the conservatives. Which is another interesting parallel to Hamilton and his revival. The play and the life of Cato became so highly regarded and so tied to the idea of Republican virtue the one who became the most enthralled with it, with the ideas of Cato, was General George Washington, who memorized the play, emulated the characters, and turned himself into a story, too. 
he put forward his best attempt at recreating the stoicism of Cato. But he truly fell in love with the character of Cato. While he was camped at Valley Forge and trying to keep his soldiers' spirits up over the winter, he screened the play as a reminder of what a virtuous death could bring his men. But none of this captures Cato completely. It would be hard to say how Cato would feel if he understood his own legacy. Even though he's being used for a new kind of sometimes revolutionary left, I suspect he wouldn't have been unhappy. Whatever else he did, he worked very hard to turn himself into a symbol. And even though the man Cato may not have been able to live up to the storybook Cato, he certainly became something bigger in the millennia that followed. He became one of the best characters to ever grace our history books, our stages, and our minds. Thank you, and I hope each of you get to make some history this week.